Turning now to our second segment, we are excited to be joined by longtime independent columnist and contributing editor, Nicholas Powers. Uh, Nick is currently working on his fourth book, which explores the intersection of psychedelics, race, and systems of power. It also asks where psychedelics would fit in a socialist revolution. Nick is also preparing to leave in a few days for Burning Man, the annual late summer countercultural extravaganza that's held uh, in the Nevada desert. The festival draws upwards of 80,000 people, and Nick has been attending Burning Man for the past 20 years, so he will fill in all of us non-burners on what all the hype is about this event. Nick, welcome back to the Independent News Hour. Oh, it's good to see my my friend John. How are you doing? Uh, doing good as always. It, uh, and uh, so let's start. Uh, uh, tell us more about this uh, uh, new book you're working on. I understand you almost got it done. So uh, what can we be looking forward to here? Yeah, thank you. So the new book is tentatively titled either Black Psychonaut or Tripping on Race. And the cover may have you know, a, a mouth with a tongue flapping out and a big LSD tap right on the tongue. So, you know, it's one of those gotcha images. And then hopefully when the reader, um, whose interest is, is heightened by the, the cover opens up the book, what they find is, um, a journey that takes you from how in this moment, black celebrities like Chris Rock, um, are being open about taking ayahuasca and doing therapy. And obviously this comes on the heels of others like Mike Tyson talking about doing DMT and mushrooms to heal his psyche after being battered, not just physically in the boxing ring, but spiritually and mentally by, you know, corrupt managers, uh, jail sentences, uh, the loss of a child and his own personal childhood traumas and demons. And so what you see is that there's a kind of elite uh, of people of color, a media elite of celebrities who are turning to psychedelics, um, specifically psychedelic therapy as a way of addressing childhood trauma. Uh, and Will Smith uh, talked uh, with, I think it's Vanity Fair uh, magazine about doing ayahuasca um, as well. And what a common thread is, is that uh, some of these celebrities actually grew up in very, very, very rough or neighborhoods where there was a lot of violence both inside the home and outside on the street. And although that trauma sometimes drove them into kind of defensive behaviors for Will Smith, it was joking. Chris Rock, it was joking. For Mike Tyson, it was boxing. But it drove them to become great success that when they reached a level of success, that they really began to kind of turn back or turn inwards and ask, you know, what were some of the some of the pain that drove me here. And so they start investigating psychedelic therapy as a, as a way of kind of pulling down the veil and looking inside the deeper layers of their, of their mind, of their memories, of their childhood. And what many of them say was that psychedelic therapy was kind of like a jet fuel blast and that it accelerated their healing. So, you know, something that maybe could have taken years, they got to revelations and understandings about themselves and literally days or weeks or sometimes hours and minutes. And so what the book does is it launches from there to really ask the question of what role does psychedelic therapy have in healing the intergenerational trauma caused by systemic racism, systemic poverty, uh, sexism and homophobia, classism, 
And then further, what role could it possibly have in a socialist revolution? And um, so, I, you know, I'm happy to report it's about maybe just 10,000 words away from being finished, like kind of landing the plane. And it it was um, a very powerful experience to write. So just got to ask, did you uh, uh, trip any when you were uh, writing the book or you got <laughs> enough trips in already? You know, it's kind of like being the designated uh, driver at a party. So, like, everyone else can get drunk and do the drugs and hook up in the bedrooms, but you got to be the one to make sure people get home in one piece. So, for me, it's like, yeah, no, I couldn't trip while I was writing the book. Um, you know, I had to, in some ways, be, like, more sober because, uh, you know, you're looking at, you're, you know, looking at scholarly articles, you're following up on, on media, uh, looking at concepts from sociology or criminology. Uh, looking at, uh, memoirs and novels and artwork. So, you know, all of that for me puts you in the mind more of a, of a writer and a researcher. Um, and if I, if I was doing acid, of I think I would square. just, huh? Of a square. Yeah, I had to be a square. So that's, that's the contradiction. A square had to write a hippie book. <laughs> uh, so what was your own, uh, uh, original psychedelic journey? I mean, what, what originally brought you to psychedelics and did, uh, did it provide, what did it provide you? The first time I heard about psychedelics was actually my mom telling me about doing LSD in the 60s. And she said that, you know, she was a community organizer. She hung out with the Young Lords and the Black Panthers, you know, here in New York. And she says, look, honestly, after a while, you just get tired of political rhetoric. You know, you, you still do the work. You, you show up, you know, you help the tenants fight the landlords and you protest the Vietnam War. But she's like, there's only so many, so much time you can, you know, you could hear the political jargon. So she'd hang out with hippies. And then the hippies would give her LSD and sugar cubes and she'd dance. And she said it was just really mind refreshing, you know, dancing and playing. And you kind of remembered why you were fighting so hard because you wanted to have a world where there was more love and more play. But she says, you know, at some point you began to feel like the hippies were just kind of on this constant escape route. And so, you know, she'd go back to the Young Lords and Panthers and organizing. So she kind of bounced back and forth. And then um, I really didn't do psychedelics until I was in college. And I was reading, you know, I was in the, the film program and then eventually I switched to literature and I was reading, you know, Allen Ginsberg and I was, you know, uh, reading the mystics as well as, you know, manuals about film history and, and literature and poetry. And I was invited to raves, you know. Um, so at that time in Boston in the nineties, a lot of the, 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 the suburbs, the factory towns outside of the city were empty. You know, the factories had moved from globalization. And so that's where the rave scene took over those factories and turned them for one or two nights into this brightly lit, you know, joyous incubator of fun. So house music. And that's where I tried MDMA and was just astounded by the euphoria, not only of the drug itself, but of the setting of the drug, which was, you know, everyone in those playful cargo pants and fluorescent colors of the 90s. But people were happy and hugging and helping each other out and carpooling and sharing water and drinks and food and it was like what my mom said about Woodstock there was this the sense that everyone was your sister and your brother and we were all there in a sense trying to create a, a world that was different from the nine to five world of gray shadows wearing you know gray business suits and you know handling dead money and so I did a more LSD in college and it was, I would say, more of an artistic and spiritual journey, um, you know, going to the river, Charles River, 
and watching the sunrise and just feeling your consciousness become more fluid and liquid and feeling the different layers of your brain. But then actually I stopped after college, uh, not for any particular reason. It was just kind of out of the scene and then, you know, I had to get back into the world. And then the turning point for me for psychedelics, I'd say the modern was when I went to Burning Man in 2002. So I, you know, I, I was in Boston and I moved back to New York to go to graduate school in August 2001. So September happens. And that whole year, you know, we were terrified and shaking and angry, worried about our friends, mourning those we lost. And a year after 9-11... You you taught at the Borough of Manhattan Community Campus, which is just up the street from where the Trade Center was located. Yeah, I remember the like seven weeks after when we were finally, you know, to finish up the semester, we had like three weeks in the semester um, and walking past this big steaming rubble, not, not steaming, but this big rubble. Um, and, you know, you can smell the kind of chalk Ajax kind of smell of, of the rubble. And it was right there. There's this massive mountain. And so that was in our bodies, that tension, that anger. And so I went to Burning Man in 2002. And to be honest, the first time I went, I hated it. Within two days, I wanted to get out. Again, I was I was so angry that people here were having so much fun, while my neighbors were mourning, you know, their dead uh, daughters and sons and family members that were, uh, you know, buried underneath the rubble. And so now, as I was like fixing my tent and I was thinking about heading out, there was this guy like just two tents over, and he goes, "Hey, you know, are you from New York?" And I could tell from his accent he was from New York too. And I was just like, "Yeah, you know." And he goes, "Yeah, my name is Tony." You're from New York. Yeah, right. And then. uh, and I told him, I was like, I didn't like this. I was like, I'm, I'm going to leave. And he goes, I, I, I know how you're feeling. So he came over and he dropped a, a tap of acid and ecstasy, a pill of ecstasy and acid in my hand. He goes, look, this is not a cure. You know, nothing's going to take away the pain that you're feeling, but at least it's going to help you understand it. So I took it. And I remember just leaving. I just walked. I just walked away from the camp and, you know, the ecstasy and the acid kicked in. And I just felt like I was floating. And when I went out past Burning Man, this little trash fence, and I hopped over the trash fence, and I got walking out. And when as as I peeked, it looked as if the stars were snow coming down, like I was catching snow from the sky from the night. And I finally burst, and all of the feelings of nine eleven just kind of came out. And I cried, and I cried, and I shouted, and I punched the desert, and it just like came out. And when I finished, and I stood up, and it was like like you know, tears and dust had become mud on my face, you know, so my face was covered with like tear mud. And I and I got up and I just felt empty. I felt good, cleansed. And I went back to the Burning Man and there was this big bonfire and people were dancing around the bonfire naked and I took off my clothes and I danced around this big bonfire naked and sweating and and then the sunrise came and I felt at peace and I stayed for Burning Man the rest of the time. And then when I flew back and I landed in JFK and you know, my, there's still dust in my dreadlocks and I came out and I could feel that my body was more relaxed. And I looked around and I could see other New Yorkers that were still tense. And I knew that that tension was going to be there for years. And so that was my first experience with psychedelic therapy. And, and again, it was not in a doctor's office. There was no kind of soothing music or candles. You know, it was out in the middle of the desert. It was surrounded by stars and fire, but it was very, very cleansing. And that's why when I got um, in 2017, I was invited to, to give a talk at Horizons. 
And I drew upon that experience and to say, to kind of be basically a testimonial that psychedelic therapy really does flush memories out of your, out of your body and trauma and angst, anxiety and terror and shame. It, it, it can flush it out of your body and give you the distance to look at it and to be able to reintegrate it into a larger story that, that leaves you stronger and more empowered and you're not feeling you know, torn apart um, by these subconscious emotions, like, you know, shadows with claws on them ripping you apart. And so it felt really, really good. And, and for people who uh, worry that if they, if they use psychedelics, they, you know, that it might, uh, you know, drive them crazy or, 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 or harm them in some way. Uh, what, what are your thoughts on that? I think I would say they, they listen too much to Richard Nixon. A lot of that is drug war propaganda. And I mean, look, of course, there are going to be a, a minority of people who unfortunately have a very bad physical reaction to psychedelics. And it's also not advisable for people who are suffering from, say, schizophrenia or multiple personality disorder. For a basic reason is that, you know, psychedelics to some extent dissolve the ego. The way the chemicals work is that they wind up suppressing what's called the kind of default network in your brain. It's a subsystem in your brain that kind of gives you the, the autobi- autobiographical sense of yourself. So the part of you that thinks of, the part of you that's, that thinks of you and talks of you in the past and future, there's that subsystem that collects all the data from the different parts of your brain and summarizes it into your inner narrative. And psychedelics kind of suppresses that. And so the other parts of your brain start to talk. And that's that feeling of synesthesia, like, Colors have temperature and sound has, has, you know, feels like it's waiting and, it, you know, you have synesthesia. So that's why it's not, it's, it's not advisable for people who have mental disorders, which are disintegrative, you know, that, that are splitting apart. But if you have a pretty stable ego, but you're, you know, dogged by depression or anxiety or obsession and you're kind of finding yourself ruminating over and over again, and you're kind of locked inside the same loop of thoughts. You're like imprisoned in your brain and you want to get out. Then psychedelics are helpful for that. Um, and also if you're an well, artist, like people with PTSD. And, yeah. PTSD. Uh, and that's the thing is that the science, you know, has been done now really since the fifties. Uh, it obviously took a hit in, you know, the early seventies because of the prohibition and the, the uh, psychedelics as well as mushrooms and, and and then eventually MDMA were illegal, are still illegal. Um, but you know, there's there was a lot of medical research done then, and there's more medical research being done now and with actual patients. So MAPS, one of the major organizations, has actually run uh tests with MDMA and um Iraq war veterans who were dealing with PTSD, you know, depression, obsessive thoughts, suicidal thoughts. And there was this one interesting case that the, the the head of MAPS, his name is Rick Doblin, was on the Joe Rogan show. And he talked about this one vet who was having a deep depression and he took MDMA and then had therapy. And one of the things that came out of the therapy was that this vet had lost a lot of friends in, in Iraq um, that were killed. And so he was deeply depressed and had suicidal thoughts of his own. And what in in the MDMA, you know, trip, he actually saw his friends again. He and he, his friends came to him and told him, "Stop trying to kill yourself out of loyalty to us. If we were still alive, 
we'd want you to be alive. We want you to live your life to the fullest because we can't do that anymore. And so he realized that his depression and his suicidal thoughts were a form of loyalty to his dead friends until he realized that his dead friends would want him to live because they couldn't live. And so just that moment of revelation just freed him from guilt and it cured him really of PTSD. His symptoms vanished almost instantaneously uh, and he was able to live his life fully. And that's just one example of many people who deal with child abuse, PTSD, depression, um, have had turnarounds because of psychedelic therapy. So, you know, this, you know, the science is in. Like, none of this is surprising. You've, you've got a back catalog of people who have been helped by, by psychedelic therapy. Hmm. Um, can you also uh, talk about uh, what you see as sort of the sort of limitations of, of therapeutic culture? And how, uh, and how it sort of, uh, limited our, uh, ability to, to see, uh, you know, the, kind of what psychedelics could do in their fullness. Uh, you've talked in the past about how the, the counterculture of the late sixties, uh, it, it sort of ha- was able to claim a vision for not only how to, uh, their own lives, but uh, of uh, how society should change. Yeah. It's, when psychedelics have been a part of, of many cultures across, you know, the centuries, across the continents, obviously ancient uh, Greece had, uh, you know, psychedelics. It was used by the the prophets. They actually would kind of dip their head into these vapors coming out of a crevice and basically get high and 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 talk about prophesies of the future. Obviously, the Mayans and the Aztecs uh, used uh, psilocybin mushrooms extensively uh, for agricultural ceremonies. Uh, the ruling class of those cultures also used it in their ceremonies. Um, obviously, you know, the Native American tradition of psilocybin and peyote. Um, so many cultures have used psychedelics and generally it's been integrated into the, to the, the kind of the functioning of the culture, you know, one way or the other, using them in some ceremonial way to get in touch with your ancestors, uh, to celebrate, you know, uh, a life milestone, um, passing, of birth or death. But in the 1960s in the United States, um, LSD, which was, you know, created by, um, Albert Hoffman in a laboratory accident in 1943, when it quote unquote escaped the lab, basically Timothy Leary and, um, uh, he would become later known as uh, Ram Das. I'm forgetting his name right now, but you know, they spread LSD wild, you know, wide and wildly. And it landed its, its most kind of big, well-known, famous, place for LSD and, and hippie culture in the United States was obviously Haight-Ashbury in San Francisco in the 1960s, specifically the Summer of Love and the Bean. And what psychedelics began in the 1950s as, as kind of a new medicine to help people get over alcoholism and, and healing, you know, a little bit of, you know, like PTSD and abuse. So it was actually kind of what, what it is starting to be again now. But then when it escaped the lab and became part of the hippie counterculture, uh, hippies actually also used it, but in a very dramatic, different way, which was to deprogram themselves from the American dream. And so the American dream, you know, with its white picket fence and its monogamy and marriage and mortgage and its American flag and God bless America and hate communism and racial segregation and no blacks allowed and no Mexicans and no Jews, that, that kind of Americana was 
dissolved like washing watercolors off of a canvas by a tab of acid. And so in Haight-Ashbury, people actively took LSD to deprogram themselves from the American dream, from broadcast TV, from the church, from the family, because they wanted to find the more authentic ways of living. And that was a very radical use. And of course, it was sloppy and it was messy. Some people got deeply hurt and scarred and a few died. But a great majority of people actually found LSD to liberate their minds and to liberate their imagination to actually think that another world was possible. And they began then not to think about it, but to actually create that world with communes, different diets, uh, experimenting with spirituality, uh, radical politics, uh, sometimes socialism and communism. Um, so it, and so many of the, the changes in American culture that we now know as kind of like mainstream ideas actually were because LSD pried open the minds of a generation and allowed them to look around at this vista of possibilities and to see that much more was reality was, was, um, you know, was this garden of Eden and like you can walk into it and kind of pick the fruit of knowledge off the tree. Mm. So uh, we have about one more minute here. Uh, so a uh, real quick, uh, you're heading out to Burning Man in a few days. Can you just give us a quick thumbnail sketch of what this event is and what you'll be doing out there? You drive in on these long, you know, highways between dusty hills with burnt grass. And, you know, you go to Reno and you pick up supplies and you meet friends. And as soon as you get there, you see this electric trail of bright smiles because everyone's giddy and excited. And you eventually drive out of Reno, 70 miles into this desert. And it's the flat, flat desert. It's the desert that you see in car commercials. It's, it's kind of like the desert you see in Oppenheimer's. It's just flat, flat. It's the camp itself. Huh? It's we- a canvas. It's a blank painter's canvas and on this blank uh blank uh blank painter's canvas uh, people arrive by the tens of thousands in a in a stream of u-hauls and trucks and cars and cargo vans and rental cars and you, you know people get their camps ready and then the great building begins and people put up their shade structures and they start building the the art installations and you know the the center camp and the city rises out of dust, and not just the city, but the art. And you see these huge amount of of just incredible artworks, like people build houses out there and art cars that look like TIE fighters or a Pac-Man or a shopping cart or a dragon, and they're all being driven around in the dust. And then there's the music begins, and house music and live music and jazz and blues and, you know, dubstep and reggae and Middle Eastern music and African drumming and cacophony of sounds are coming up and and everyone there's just giddy and dancing and there's a bar everywhere and people are filling up your your cups for free and smoking weed and dancing and there's an orgy dome and people are half naked and people are making out and marriages are broken up and marriages are begun kids are conceived on the playa uh you know stds are transmitted it's amazing and then it's all uh, sent up in flames at the end. Yeah, um, big, yeah, big bonfire at the end for all the uh, creations. Well, unfortunately, we have to leave it there. Obviously, uh, Nick, you're sounding very excited to get to get out there in a few days. Uh, Nicholas Powers, a longtime indie columnist, thank you so much for joining us again on today's show. And and that's it for this week's Independent uh, News Hour. Thanks to our uh, audio engineer Reggie Johnson, also. Uh, Amu Gagarian helping out uh, behind the scenes. We will be off uh, next week, but we will be back on Tuesday, September 5th. Thank you.
And uh, our outgoing uh, music here is Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds by the Beatles. To yourself in a boat on a river with tangerine trees and marmalade skies. Somebody calls you, you answer quite slowly, a girl with curls. 